Today's guest is Peter Foster. Peter is a British journalist who has closely followed the UK's relationship with the EU. He's been an important and often authoritative guide to policy questions posed by Brexit since the referendum. Peter joined the Financial Times as public policy editor in 2020, prior to which he was Europe editor at the Telegraph Media Group. He has more than two decades of experience covering global affairs, based in New Delhi, Beijing and Washington DC, where he was the Telegraph's US editor. Peter's book, What Went Wrong with Brexit and How to Fix It, is published by Canongate. The title signals the two ambitions of the book. In the first part, he offers a clear-eyed discussion of the real and practical effects of Brexit on businesses. In the second, he sets out the steps, political, economic and diplomatic, that the UK needs to follow if it is to undo some of the damages done by Brexit. Welcome to Peter. I try and unpack for people why Brexit doesn't work and probably was never going to work. The people that move things and make things, their inputs into this wider conversation at Brexit are almost non-existent. You know, the whole nation, is, as it were, has been kind of gaslighted on the question of trade. And the Labour Party don't want to talk about it because they don't want to upset Brexit voters in the Red Wall, who they want to take back from Johnson. And the result is that the concerns and the realities of the people who move things and make things that I try and unpack in the book are just missing. This very zero-sum approach, which the Tory government has taken and which to some degree been reflected in EU responses is an unhappy state of affairs and it won't change by accident. So can we can we begin with a question we ask all our guests? What led you to write the book and what are the main messages you intended it to communicate? So it's an interesting one what led me to write the book, which was actually somebody asked me to write it. People used to often say to me, you know, because I've written so much about Brexit in my reporting life, why haven't you written a Brexit book? And the truthful answer was, despite having a rather fancy agent, nobody would publish one because everyone was bored to death with Brexit. And it was really a politically kind of quite inert subject because everyone's red lines were drawn and nobody wanted to talk about it. Canongate, the publisher of this book, phoned me up after the FT, uh, the Financial Times, did a video which got 5 million views looking at the costs of Brexit. And they looked forward to what was coming, the polls shifting, which indicated, A, that there's likely to be a Labour government, which would suggest the opportunity for a rethink, a, a new tack on Brexit, because they don't carry the same baggage as the Conservative government. And then changes in the opinion polls, even among Brexiteers, saying that people recognised that Brexit wasn't going that brilliantly and that even Tory voters from Redfield and Wilton polling done uh, by the UK in a changing Europe over the summer showing that Tory voters from 2019 felt Brexit had deepened the cost of living crisis, had made the economy worse than it otherwise would have been, etc., etc. So the book was you know, commissioned to kind of be an explainer and a, and a, a jumping off point into this new space that is emerging ahead of potentially a Labour government, ahead of the implementation review of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And so what it tries to do is two things. In the first half, I try and unpack for people why Brexit doesn't work and probably was never going to work. People have a sort of vague sense it's not working. But I try and explain in a very nuts and bolts way 
Why leaving the single market furs up supply chains? Why non-tariff barriers do, despite what David Frost said in Brussels before he negotiated the deal, uh, create impediments to trade? Why it's so deranged our politics uh, and our and our, and the management of our constitution, and what that that has done in terms of creating uncertainty and negative narrative for investors, and then you know. The other nuts and bolts stuff about what it's done into, in terms of uh, uh, you know human interactions between the UK and the EU, and this divergence ratchet effectively that's created by leaving the single market and concluding a very narrow trade deal, and then in the second half, what I try and do is explain or, or look at what a future government could do in order to repair relations and improve relations, but within the red lines that both main parties have set themselves, which is no single market and no customs union. And then very lastly, I say, well, you know, there's bits and pieces you could do. There's good things you probably should do, but none of it is really, really going to change the price of fish. But the exercise may still be worthwhile in order to um, take a much more honest look at where the UK actually is. You know, the UK's productivity investment crisis precedes Brexit. But fixing that is going to require honesty about what the UK's offer is and what needs to be fixed at home in order to try and address some of the problems to which Brexit creates additional headwinds. That's great. That's a very, that's a very wide-ranging um, answer. I mean, I think one of, one of the really interesting and useful parts of the book was where you describe the experience of actual companies post-Brexit, because a lot of this debate is just is mudslinging and, and doesn't really engage with um, real experience. And you tell us about the experience of Hampstead Tea, about integrity and engineering services, about LMK uh, Thermosafe Limited. So, you know, I think the first thing is, you know, David Frost gave a speech in 2020, before in February 2020, before he uh, negotiated a trade deal, which he basically said, I don't believe... I think non-tariff barriers to trade are exaggerated. So what I do is explain why that's not the case. So with Hampstead Teas, a company that that imported raw teas and packed them in Milton Keynes and sent them to all over Europe, probiotic teas, I explain the difficulties that uh, uh, the woman that runs it, uh, Kieran Tawadi, has. Uh, she sends the first consignment to Italy. Um, they can't work out whether green tea and black tea should be treated the same, which parts of the organic food directives ought to apply. I quote uh, a, a long and mind-numbing uh, uh, email from her customs agent about whether or not um, black tea, comma, fermented should have this customs code and should or shouldn't be applying. And what that does is explain that you know, the presumption of conformity is lost by us losing the single market. When you're part of the UK, even though the U UK's rules on organics hadn't changed, it is no longer presumed that the UK complies. So if you're exporting tea from the UK to the EU, you need to show that you've complied. And then you discover that actually that presumption of conformity applied to all other 27 member states. But actually, the Germans and the French and the Italians all apply the directive or their customs authority do in a slightly different way. Anyway, she quickly gives up, moves to the Netherlands, uh, uh, opens a distribution warehouse, closes her Milton Keynes warehouse in order to import once and export seamlessly, or not export, but distribute seamlessly within the EU. So that's a little story about the reality of goods exports, particularly food and animal products. Another company uh, that I talk about, Infinity Engineering Services, they do gas turbine 
uh, servicing. And so what they discovered was that their EU clients, where they were going to service gas turbine generators, basically either didn't know what permits their engineers needed or weren't prepared to get them. And when asked this company to sign disclaimers saying, well, if you get in trouble after the fact, it's on you, not on us. And the company said, well, we can't do that. And then they discovered, you know, yes, you could get the permits, but that means, you know, applying weeks in advance. And that's fine if you're doing the annual service of the gas turbine generator, which is like a big generator that creates electricity in an industrial hub, but no good if it's broken down on Tuesday and they want it fixing on Wednesday. And that brings you in both these cases to what I call the marginal frictional disadvantage. If it's easier, if all things being equal, you can get your service engineer from Pedro in Barcelona without let or hindrance, rather than Peter in Brighton, uh, you know, with all the paperwork, where are you going to get it from? You're going to get it from Pedro in Barcelona. And that's the problem that UK manufacturing and services firms face. When they've got world-beating products, et cetera, it's worth the candle, as it were. So it's not that trade is over. It's just that it's marginally more difficult. And it only needs to be slightly marginally more difficult when you talk to businesses for EU-based uh, companies, single market-based companies, to tend to prefer those companies that are already within the single market. It stands to reason. Um, now, the last thing in a very long answer is this issue about non-tariff barriers is growing, not shrinking. I think people think, well, everyone's got used to Brexit, they will get over it. Um, but actually, what you look at is there is essentially a ratchet of divergence. So think one example, the EU is about to impose carbon border taxes. Now, it's going to impose those taxes on every all, all people exporting into the single market. And EU importers are going to have to get the paperwork on those products covered by the carbon border adjustment mechanism, things like aluminium, fertilizer, steel, to get calculate the cost of the embedded carbon. And if the tax hasn't been paid, uh, then um, the, you know they're going to have to buy carbon credits from 2026. Now, if the UK was a member of the EU single market still, it would it would still be doing this piece of bureaucracy. The difference is now that UK companies are going to have to do it between the UK and the EU. And again, that matters, and this is true of all these barriers, much more to the UK than to other countries because nearly 50% of our trade is still done with Europe. And it's done at high intensity in highly integrated uh, supply chains where intermediate bits of objects whiz back and forth. And therefore, yes, Americans are going to be doing CBAM credits with the EU, but not in the same volume and at the same intensity and the same micro level as UK companies. Do you get a sense that there's an understanding of this in, in government? Uh, no, yet or, or... no, Hussein, I don't. I mean, I think, well, listen, there is understanding in DBT. Of course there is. Mm. But the diff the reason, you know, if the book has any point, and it's a short book, it's 100 and, you know, it's 160, 70 pages, 65,000 words. You know, it's a very quick read deliberately. Because actually, the people that move things and make things, 50% of the exports of this country are manufactured goods. The people that move things and make things, their inputs into this wider conversation at Brexit are almost non-existent. Ministers, are do, the ones that do understand it, they just don't want to know because it just creates embarrassing problems, right? Remember the, what the mm. former prime minister said? F business. That's the level of frustration mm. you've got. And so... You know, this is a, one of the problems you get with the what Brexit does to the civil servants, you know, who are, you know, technocrats fundamentally, 
And, you know, ministers are wedded to positions on deregulation and on on the realities of trade that, you know, require civil servants to either bury their head in the sands or or to object. And that just creates fr- frictions with ministers. And so yeah. even though the reality is well understood, it's airbrushed from the conversation. And because we've had a Tory party that doesn't want to own the fact that it's reverse trade deal with Europe, which is what the TCA is. You know, it's a reverse trade deal. The same people that champion free trade and the value of doing trade deals with faraway countries like the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, which are about removing barriers, somehow also champion erecting barriers to the market that takes half our trade. And if you think about that for more than about two seconds, you go slightly crazy. Um, You know, but that is what kind of where the conversation has been you know, the whole nation is, as it were, has been kind of gaslighted on the question of trade. And the Labour Party don't want to talk about it because they don't want to upset Brexit voters in the red wall who they want to take back from Johnson, the ones who transferred to the Tories in 2019. And the result is, as I say, the people, the, the concerns and the realities of the people who move things and make things that I try and unpack in the book are just missing from the conversation. I'm sort of very conscious you know, of life before Brexit or sort of during the referendum and afterwards, and and you were well, you were in another um, position than working for a different employer, and you were you were covering um, these things. Did you get a sense that the technicalities were were understood then? I it's a good question. You know, um, I think people didn't want to understand them, and they, insofar as they did understand them, they pushed them away because they conflicted with this narrative that Brexit would make the UK nimbler more productive uh we'd be unshackled from the corpse that was the eu single market now you know that wasn't a post-brexit thing it was a pre-brexit thing of 30 year standing you know bendy bananas you know actually if you if you look at the work that nicholas crafts did at warwick on terms of what the single market actually delivered to the uk in terms of productivity competitiveness you know, growth in economy, um, it's really clear there were huge upside benefits of being a member of the single market. Those were actually obscured prior to Brexit. I mean, the whole Bendy Bananas EU red tape narrative, and it persists now. I mean, what's amazing is that despite this reverse trade deal that we've done, despite the fact that all that Brexit red tape has become red, white, and blue tape. The Sun newspaper, when it was reporting in the row over the retained EU law bill, you remember that piece of legislation where they pled, now they've rode back on it now, but we're going to rip up all EU retained law by the end of the year. The Sun was writing about bendy bananas in 2022 or 2023. You know, all those years since Boris Johnson was filing his uh, pieces on Brussels regulation. And I think one of the troubles, honestly, is that that basic view about Brussels red tape was so embedded in the Tory party that even after it became trans- absolutely apparent that UK business didn't want to diverge, it didn't want two sets of competing regulations. Remember Jacob Rees-Mogg writing to Sun readers and saying, write in and tell us which EU directives you want stripped away. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, when he launched his dashboard on EU regulation, uh, uh, telling the House of Commons that it would be a productivity boost to the economy. I spent a lot of time phoning economists trying to find one who believed that net-net it would be a productivity boost to the economy. But but that belief, and it still holds now to some degree, was very deep-seated. And so whilst I think there was some real cynicism 
after Boris Johnson took over, where the sort of sovereignty at all costs uh, approach to Brexit won, won out. And that was the price of Johnson taking power. And therefore, we got the very hard Brexit that Frost delivered. But under that was this sort of deep-seated belief that deregulation could bring productivity, when in fact, deregulation brings uncertainty, which deters investment. And, you know, having two separate regimes for regulation is not what industry in the round wants. And even though there are upsides, perhaps in some sectors where there's lower costs or more freedoms, you always have to weigh that against the downside costs of the UK being further, you know, further barriers for the UK between it and its largest market. And there's also a sort of deeper lying sort of politics and, and, and maybe an amnesia here. I and mean, I'm thinking of one of the um one of the comments that gets reported, um, I think it's Philip Hammond who's who's quoted um saying that, you know, it's it's high time that the UK um really sort of threw its weight around in Brussels. And I mean what's curious to me is the UK was a, a tremendous uh, tremendously important influence in Brussels, and that many of the regimes that we see um in in regulatory sectors in energy, in aviation, in telecommunications, in, in banking financial services were strongly influenced by the UK and the UK vision. Some of that that never made it into a narrative that Somehow got lost. No, no, on the contrary, right? A bit like regulation of the single market, as we've just discussed, on that, you know, democratic consent piece, the UK's role in, in creating regulation was never acknowledged. It was all about, you know, the regulation being imposed from Brussels as if member states had no say. And as you rightly say, the UK, because it had technical prowess and regulatory capacity, had an outsized say in uh, uh, shaping regulation. I, I use the example in the book, famous example in Whitehall about the lawnmower directive in John Major's government, where it gets back to London that um, there's a directive from Brussels setting the decibel limit for people's lawnmowers. And the minister's apoplectic, you know, that Brussels is determining how loud a freeborn Englishman should have his lawnmower when he mowed his lawn on a Saturday afternoon. What absurdity. And when, and when the inquiry was launched as to how on earth Brussels had been allowed to set this directive, well, it turned out that the UK had been instrumental in creating the directive because the crafty Germans had set the decibel limit lower for imports of lawnmowers, knowing full well that UK lawnmowers, which were throatier than German ones, wouldn't make the bar. So actually, the good old single market kicked in there, um, you know, no, no discrimination on trade, and the, the decibel limit was set accordingly. But as you say, those those narratives were entirely lost because of what I call slightly facetiously in the book, the dad's army view of Europe and the dad's army view of foreign affairs, you know, those opening credits where plucky Britain and, you know, and Johnson in the, honestly, Johnson in the campaign went back to, you know, Hitler, Napoleon, you know, the EU was part of the pantheon of trying to unite Europe, you know, and so, and I think, you know, going forward, these very deep seated narratives are much stronger than the kind of counter narrative that's emerging, which is that Brexit isn't going that well, you know, and you're seeing it now with some of this sort of, you know, Daily Mail and Daily Telegraph reaction to even Starmer daring to visit Macron in Paris. You know, these narratives are incredibly deep seated. And yes, they're deep seated on the right, but they're actually quite deep seated across the UK. It's in our political DNA. 
that, but that that narrative wasn't always dominant. I mean, I, I just think about um, I mean, the example I, I always had because I've sort of worked on this was how a strategic decision was taken by the Thatcher government by the most. Well, in some ways, one of the most Eurosceptic ministers that we have ever known, Nicholas Ridley, that the only way of achieving the UK's ambition of liberalising the aviation sector was to effectively to use the competition laws of the treaty. So you wonder what, what's happened between then and now. I mean, Maastricht happened, isn't it, is, is the truth of that. And the Tory party... It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, kind of a left-wing critique of of the European Union is that precisely that it's a it's a corporatist Tory conspiracy to to, you know, that goes goes back to the 70s, doesn't it? Where, you know, British labour unions were essentially neutered by, com- by, by exposing UK industry to competition from Europe. And the post-Maastricht narrative, which is now 30 years, isn't it, essentially, of, you know, an under, an, un, an underhand attempt to to emasculate Britain, and you saw it when when Starmer went to the Hague to talk about migration agreement of some description. The word plot comes up, right? Plot. I mean, he, you know, there's a big picture of Keir Starmer in the Hague, but it's plot. It's this slightly sinister undertone that anybody who goes to Brussels is consorting with the enemy, and actually Thatcher. In, in in the latter half of her uh, uh, term in office, ended up fueling that narrative. Actually, you know that you know that the handbag, you know, aside from Nick Ridley and and the single market in aviation, actually the kind of handbag rebate narrative, and that of course played into this nonsense that you still see now about the UK needs to assert itself regardless of its size. You know, the Dan Hannan review of my book says the most absurd thing about Foster's book is he still doesn't, he still thinks we should prostrate ourselves in front of Europe, you know, rather than assert ourselves. Well, look how asserting, I mean, actually, when we asserted ourselves as a member, we did get somewhere in some things, but now we were out. If you go back to 2010 and David Cameron trying to assert himself on the uh, on the ben- on the review with the trying to get a, a emergency break on free movement and trying to block the 2011 deal on uh, eurozone you know fiscal limits you know where 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 Sarkozy went off and did an intergovernmental treaty around the UK's back you know time and again that whole narrative has turned out to be nothing more than a kind of fiction, although it persists. And it did to this day. You know, David Frost still keeps saying, you know, we'd have not got our brilliant Brexit deal if we hadn't, if we'd failed to assert ourselves. But actually, what did you get? You know, well, you know, in the end, they climbed down twice over threatening to break the law over the Northern Ireland deal. You know, they've got some concessions over that. But the cost of that has been, as William Hague said in his in the recent Laura Koonsberg documentary, turning the UK into a laughingstock. And that's the polite bit. But again, you know, we shouldn't be naive. You know, these narratives are very strong and they're out there. And a Labour government looking to move closer to Europe, whatever that means, is going to have to fight those narratives and going to have to be brave in a way that, frankly, no no politician. I mean, you'd know better this, this than me, but I don't really think any politician, including Blair in lots of ways, has dared to be for the last 30, 40 years. Well, thanks, Peter. Um, I enjoy the book very much. And you, you offer quite a lot of guidance about the next steps for the UK and what it needs to do. Uh, you write Rejoin, um, which I think many would also see as a somewhat utopian project. Do you think it is politically possible for either of the main parties to undertake that fundamental rethink about the UK's relationship with Europe that you envisage in the book? 
So, you know, I, 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 I don't think what I think really matters, truthfully. I, you know, what I tried to do in the book is set out the parameters of what's possible within, you know, the red lines that the parties have set themselves. I do think that if the Labour Party is brave, it can go quite a long way to resetting the relationship with Europe. Actually, a lot of Tories are fed up with Brexit and want it to go away. If you look at, for example, the Windsor framework, you know, the star chamber of the Tory party, they all howled and complained. But in the end, what that showed is the world moved on. And I think if the Labour Party is is brave, the learned experience will be that the sky doesn't fall in when you move closer to Europe. That said, I think the difficulty for the Labour Party is going to be when it comes to rethinking not just the Brexit deal we have, but actually in the process, the UK's wider position in its neighbourhood, reframing it as, look, this is our neighbourhood. We need to have interactions with our young people. Our businesses need their supply chains, etc. That positive case. Two things are going to happen. One is the right-wing conservative press, as we're already seeing, is going to circle the wagons. And the Tory party, it may tack back to the centre, as the Labour Party did after Corbyn. It may tack to the right. So there may well be a lot of pressure from a the right sovereigntist rump of the Tory party. And Starmer is going to have to stand up to that. Secondly, in order to reset the relationship, Starmer's going to have to put stuff on the table. And that is going to require him to, I don't know, join Erasmus, think about linking our carbon schemes, defence and security pacts that has the UK teaming up with Europe to fund uh, uh, ammunition to Ukraine, joining Operation Altea, for example, regular summits with Brussels. But all of that is going to lead to A, rule-taking, and B, relatively small, obvious returns for quite a lot of political flack in the first instance. Now, what I argue in the book is, in order to kind of combat that, frame it fundamentally about jobs and investment, the UK's offer, restoring the UK's place in the world, bringing investment in to those red wall seats that are more reliant on manufacturing jobs, saving the car industry. Frame it as an economic, not an identity question. And secondly, be brave enough to accept that the dividends aren't going to be obvious, but the UK has to restore its place now now that's you know that's definitely what they're saying at the moment but it will be hard in a fiscally constrained environment probably if the polls are right quite likely with a fairly small majority it will be hard to fight that narrative that you're spending something for nothing you know the treasury won't be keen to give loads of money to join erasmus when we get less out of it than we put in right do we really want to funnel our defence dollars to Ukraine via a European project rather than putting a nice union jack on it. All of that, you know, Labour ministers will find that stuff difficult too. And so the narrative, the danger is that the narrative will get up, you know, it's a load of pain for not much gain. And as one senior UK foreign office official said to me last week, you know, the story of, I bet, the story of the first term of Starmer's government, Labour's government, will be their disillusionment with Europe because the TCA implementation review is only that. It won't be transformational. They're going to find, as we did with Horizon, etc., there's no freebies. And I think that's going to be the stamina challenge for Starmer, you know, who I think does probably or does understand that at some level the UK 
has to move has to move closer to Europe. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right right about that. I mean, I think that uh, there's a kind of disbelief on the EU side at um, at what the you know, first of all the UK belief that there is sort of low hanging fruit, and also that it's um, the relationship is so easily normalizable. Many of these things are just would only be possible through treaty change, and you know, quite honestly, that isn't um, isn't going to happen. No, indeed, and that I think again is walking this line between realism and ambition. Because the danger is, if you give up, given the kind of half-life of relationships, commercial, diplomatic, etc., the danger is that five years from now, if Starmer's won a, a majority and has done, done a decent job and is moving, looking for a second term, the question is what, where he's moving to next. And 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 basically, if he's just been overrun by by inertia and gravity and events, what you'll find is, and this was you know a deliberate structural as they say, ratchet in the in the frost deal, what you'll find is that you've actually moved backwards over time. And then, you know, the UK's position is A, worse over time economically, but B, that much harder to restore. You know, but given you've got Ukraine accession, I think, you know, there are, there are analysts out there who would say that the UK is going to have to, sorry, the EU is going to have to think about ways in which its satellites dock onto the mothership, as it were, the UK needs to get itself back in the game because this very zero-sum approach, which the Tory government has taken and which to some degree you know, has been reflected in EU responses, is an unhappy state of affairs and it won't change by accident. You know, The default inert position is that, is that things get worse over time, not better. And, and unless something is done to arrest that ratchet effect, it will get worse, not better. And nobody should think otherwise. So in the book, you list a number of unilateral measures that the UK can take and should take, and uh, for anyone who should read the book, um, they're from page 158 onwards. But the other the other sort of key um, requirement, it, it seems to me, is about the sort of political debate. And um, on again, on page 174, you say it'll be about putting U- the UK's own house in order first. And that requires state capacity, it requires political leadership, it requires money. And I just wondered if you're confident these resources are or might be available. No, we know that they're not. But I think one of the one of the arguments for honesty about Brexit. So you asked me at the start, you know, about the people who move things and make things, and I made the argument that their voices had been completely lost. And that is a symptom of the fact that the political narratives are simply divorced from reality. So the FT that I work for is read by people with skin in the game. And it's like there's two orbits of knowledge and conversation. One is this political sort of boosterish science superpower world, which is sort of for the public consumption. And then there's the other world, which is about people with skin in the game who really want to know about the capacity of our regulators, even if we were going to be nimbler and better to actually deliver um, in spaces like medical devices or clinical drug trials or gene editing. So the fact that those two conversations don't collide because politicians keep them separate is a huge problem. And one of my arguments for the Labour Party actually engaging on Brexit and not constantly ducking it, which is what they've done for the last three years. I mean, one of the one of the crazy things really is that in a normal world, you'd have had this very sovereignty at all costs, Tory damaging Brexit delivered, and you'd had an opposition pointing the finger. 
saying, see, look what it's done to the car industry. See, look what it's done to uh, UK exports and imports and trade intensity. See what it's done for jobs in the Red Wall, in the Northeast and Midlands, the manufacturers that depend on. None of that's happened. None of it. And so the argument for, and this is where I worry about Labour, because actually it's what one former senior diplomat described to me as more affable cakeism, is that actually, you know, the Labour Party is still kind of pretending that this stuff can be fixed with warm words. Oh, we're going to have mutual recognition and professional qualifications. That's one of our big things. Okay, well, there is a provision for that in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. There's one of those in CETA, the Canada deal. It took Canada nine rounds of negotiation and a year to get a deal on architect. Well, that isn't going to change the price of fish. And so my argument for honesty is that that in itself is a healing process. If we actually internalize the cul-de-sac that we've backed ourselves into. And if we're not going to rejoin the single market and customs union because politically we can't stomach it, then we better get really serious about land provision, development, deciding what the UK offer is to investors, skills, city city densification, city uh, transport networks, etc. And in a fiscally constrained environment, how we're going to deliver the growth not madcap Liz Trust, let's have an investment zone in every town, but serious, you know, properly thought out in industry linked based policymaking that is aimed at delivering better futures and opportunities for the UK. But I am I confident? No, I'm not. No, I wish I was. But what 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 of the last seven years leads you to be confident? None. And and sadly, the narrative over outside the UK is incredibly negative. But these things get a life of their own. You know, a Starmer government is committed to fixing that, but it isn't going to really fix it by dodging home truths at home. I mean, you've you've talked very compellingly about how the economics of Brexit is rapid, rapidly catching up uh, with the politics of Brexit and how the two cannot remain divorced forever. I suppose that's what you're referring to about, you know, the honest truths. The observation is based on the fact that the polls show people are not happy with what they got from Brexit. And with political leadership, I think the politics and economics of Brexit can converge. And actually fixing the politics of Brexit is about addressing the economics of Brexit, in my view. The danger is that, you know, the frog gets slowly boiled. And, you know, this festering family row is never addressed. It just simmers. It just simmers under the surface around the, you know, the Christmas the Christmas dinner table. You know, that's because, you know, Brexit doesn't, I don't think, provoke a massive economic crisis. There's a very good Resolution Foundation report, which just looked at how what actually happens is high value manufacturing jobs slowly get squeezed out and replaced by lower value ones. So, you know, for example, you know, Honda in Swindon, a big factory full of engineers and technical staff, Honda have left partly because of Brexit, partly because of reorienting their manufacturing chains. Honda have left. And then what's in in its place on the site is a big logistics centre. And those engineers and technicians who were doing higher productivity work for higher productivity wages are replaced by lower productivity, lower wage workers. Swindon doesn't have an unemployment crisis, but it has lower paying, lower productivity jobs. And that is the danger here. It's It's the boiling of the frog. It's the slow puncture. And If Labour decides it's just too politically difficult to address the UK's fundamental problems, which predate Brexit, nobody should think that, you know, Brexit caused all of our problems. It causes additional headwinds now 
it puts us in a kind of structural bind that makes it harder to fix those problems. But those problems, as Jonathan Porter's said in his review of the book, of the book in The Guardian, you know, predate Brexit. I thought he was a bit mean because the book was not what's wrong with Britain and what to do about it. It's what went wrong with Brexit and what to do about it. But he's right that all these issues predate the Brexit vote in 2016. They, you know, you can trace them post-financial crisis, I guess, in 2008. But my view is, if you've got your head in the sand about Brexit and where that leaves the Bre- the UK's offer in terms of trade and investment, and where that leaves the UK, you know, as an offer to the outside world, because Brexit creates permanent structural uncertainty and regulatory friction. You know, it's there. It's there now. A fact of life. You're investing in the UK on a ten or fifteen year horizon. Political risk is now a factor in your thinking in a way that it wasn't before. Right? Those elements of the UK, legal and regulatory certainty, and stable politics and rule of law that outlived political cycles, whether it was Labour or Tories in power, have now been removed. Yes, we took back control, but we've shown what control can do. And so restoring that long-term trust, that long-term stability in and confidence in the UK is incredibly important, but it's also incredibly difficult because the fact remains, until you fix and address Brexit, by definition, even if passively, the UK is in a frictional relationship with the EU, its largest trading market. Thank you. I like the line, fixing the politics of Brexit is about fixing its economics first. They go hand in hand. Just your book is very much focused on the UK. What led you to that choice? You've been talking a lot about the the perception of the UK outside and so on. Were were you, both for the FT and for your former employer, were you speaking to the EU side as well at the same same time? Yes, I I talked to the EU side a lot. So so the, Mm. the, the sections of the book that look at how the EU might respond to UK overtures of a different government and what the UK might need to do in order to shift the EU and EU capitals and the Commission away from a default position, which is just enough Brexit psychodrama already, we've got other things to worry about, are informed by conversations in the EU. The book is you know, written by a British journalist for a British audience, fundamentally, and so it naturally focuses on the UK situation. Although what it tries to do is avoid the pitfalls of what's happened for the last seven years in the political negotiations and indeed in much of the press coverage is this sense that the UK is negotiating with itself, right? I mean, you know, it's very clear the book that the EU, until convinced otherwise, isn't rightly, isn't particularly engaged with the UK because it can see the political constraints on both sides. I think, you know, Starmer's public red lines on the single market and the customs union are unhelpful precisely actually because they just give everyone in Europe who doesn't want to engage, you know, the excuse to say, well, you know, what do you want? You know, if you don't want single market and customs union, well, you're going to get what you've got. I think truthfully, actually, the EU is changing the space in the Nordics and the Baltics on the cybersecurity and, you know, defense side based on mobility But first and foremost, Starmer has to stabilise the relationship, draw a line under the kind of zero-sum approach that we see from the EU, sorry, from the UK, and even recently, latterly, on the Horizon negotiation that took, you know, seven months after the Windsor framework because of what the EU calls bean-countering, the bean-countering approach. The trouble is, you know, in order to take a more expansive approach, the UK is, I think, going to have to 
prime the pump. That's going to mean putting money on the table to join EU programs. That's going to mean taking a neighbourhood type approach. But you know that doesn't mean that Labour ministers aren't going to be in the Treasury. You know, with with officials going, well, hang on, you want to join Horizon? Well, that's fifteen billion quid's worth of contributions, and our estimates are we're going to need to get thirteen million back. How is that a good deal? It'll be a similar conversation with Horizon and other programs. And and there's going to have to be a political decision to say, look, you know, we've basically been taking this approach on with the EU that, you know, we're going to undercut you, undermine you, run off on our own little, on our own little way and do our own little thing. And if you want to reverse that approach, you've got to show willing. So there was recently some reporting around the UK looking for mobility deals. But when you asked around European capitals and Brussels, the overwhelming sense was that actually the UK didn't want youth mobility exchanges. It just wanted a cheap source of young European labour. It's the same with the Turing scheme. It's a one-way scheme, right? It pays for people to go out of the UK. It doesn't pay for anyone to come back. It's that kind of zero-sum approach that Starmer is going to have to reverse. But it won't be easy because he'll be accused of plotting to give away, to emasculate Britain and make us Brussels poodle. And by the way, there will be some truth in that because we've packed ourselves into a world where one of the ways to remove trade frictions is to align with EU rules. And and in the first instance, the EU is going to go, well, you know, that's Fight Club, baby. Welcome to gravity. That's what happens when a small country finds itself in the position of a demandeur against a big country. And that stuff will be true, by the way. But unless you can convince people it's a gateway to, you know, better trade, investment, et cetera, et cetera, and that's going to require leadership. And, you know, there's been no political leadership on Europe, really, for 30 years. There's, there's another part of this um, as well, though. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that, that, that your list um, is so long is because the UK negotiators really did pursue a, a kind of scorched earth policy. Was, they didn't want anything in the deal that seemed to privilege the relationship between the UK and Europe. So a lot of things that were offered that now, you know, some people at least suggest ought to be restored, you know, the UK delegation didn't want, refused to, to have. And you, know, you get a sense of, if you, if you look at uh, Michelle Barnier's book and, and Seven Drinks book, in a way, there, there's a responsibility for where we are now that lies with the, the UK delegation. I think that it's really important to sort of excavate that when you're trying to explain you know, what needs to be done. Can we finish off um, what's been a really great conversation, thank you very much, Peter, by asking you, have you been surprised by the reaction and response to your book? You already mentioned Daniel Hannan's response and um, Jonathan Porter's. I mean, are there others uh, that, uh, that you want to discuss? And have you been surprised by what you've been asked in, in exchanges such as this? Um... I started disappointed. I would, you know, I was disappointed with the Hannon review because it was so superficial and lazy, right? In the sense that there's lots in the book that Daniel Hannon, as a kind of paid-up Brexiteer, could have read and absolutely excoriated. Look at this Remainer nonsense trying to reconstruct the Ming vase. You've got to admit that the vase has been smashed and you've got to sweep up the pieces and build a different vessel, etc. Look at the level of, you know, alignment that they're suggesting from the Tony Blair Institute. This is the kind of nonsense that, you know, is going to lead this country to be a, you know, in penurious poodledom forever. But he didn't do that. He just launched a kind of fairly kind of pathetic ad hominem attack about Remainer derangement syndrome. Because if he had engaged, that would have actually been the gateway to a conversation about 
alignment and why we find ourselves needing alignment in order to protect our economy and our trade and the whole question about why we did what we might or might not want the seat at the table. You know, that's the beginning of a better conversation. And, you know, pieties aside, the point of this book is not trying to win an old argument. It's trying to start a better, more informed conversation. So I am sort of surprised that the right-wing press, my old paper, The Daily Telegraph, you know, which, to be fair to it, printed an awful lot of my reporting, you know, between 2015, 16 and 2020 when I left, that was full of home truths about why Brexit was going to be really tough going. Uh, But I am surprised just how little the Mail and the Telegraph have moved on relative to where the polls are. And I think, you know, that is quite a depressing conversation really you know you know david frost writing in his column uh, you know just recently that you know it's absurd to say my deal is thin it's the biggest the widest trade deal ever ever made you know well yeah, well i guess that's true if we were you know starting from zero but working back down from being a member of the single market it's a reverse trade deal you know, there's no good gaslighting the entire nation. He knows that perfectly well. I don't know whether the readers of the Daily Telegraph really internalise that. But at that level of kind of whataboutery and, and gaslighting about what Brexit's done, I find the fact that it's still going on. You know, nobody, perhaps nobody really listens to David Frost and Liz Truss anymore. But you wonder post-election where the Tory party ends up on that. And so, you know, the one thing I have been disappointed by and perhaps I was being naive, but it's just how blocked the conversation still is on this stuff. And then I think, you know, the other strand which is interesting is the, and this is, I think, you know, a real issue going forward, is the kind of slightly defeatist, it's all impossible approach, which you get as a result of people analysing what you can do once the uh, uh, red lines on single market and customs unions are plugged in. And so, you know, I'm very clear on that in the book. As you say, there's all this nitty gritty stuff, what you can and can't do without treaty change. But I think the danger is that that becomes a sort of defeatist mantra, really. And that and that what's lost is that, you know, this process is going to be long winded. I believe that gravity will take over, but you've got to start somewhere. And if you don't start, then the world's going to move on without you fairly quickly. You know, nonetheless, going back right to the start of our conversation, at least somebody commissioned the book, right? At least, you know, there's a sense that this is a conversation that is coming, right? And actually, all the stuff that's now in the papers this week about Starmer going to see Macron, Starmer going to The Hague, Starmer in Canada, it's starting. Mm. And there's a lot to play for. And, and your book is different and distinct. I mean, it does. It, it's very different from the other the other books that are around there, and uh, it's um, you know, it's it's sort of very important in that respect. I was really curious as well that you started off by talking about what trade means, because it strikes me that unless somebody explains what trade what trade is, what a customs union looks like, what a single market is, what non tariff tariffs are, then none of this is comprehensible. No, and and of course, you know, people. That's why at the start of the book, there is literally a let's let's revise guide to to the basics of trade, right? Mm. Because actually, one of the difficulties, of course, was that people thought the single market was there, like the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. Remember Dan Hannan saying, "There's absolutely no chance of us leaving the single market. Why would we do that?" This goes, you know, back to 
how on earth did the Tory party convince himself of this stuff? Well, it's because it never, it never internalized the fact that the single market was created by having a single rule book. And that requires you to have a referee. That requires you to have the European Court of Justice. And you make trade-offs on sovereignty in order to deliver those benefits. And, you know, even... And, and you know, the sad thing is, I think, that the, the rightward drift of the Tory party on this... or, or you know, The sad thing is that, you know, if you go back to... I say that I recall this story in the book to Theresa May deciding which bits of justice and home affairs to opt in and opt out of, for example, the European arrest warrant. You know, she stood up to... Bill Cash, Jacob Rees-Mogg, all the usual suspects, and said, no, actually, for the safety and security of this country, that's a fair trade-off. And so, you know, we can be a sovereign of North Korea if we like, you know, but we'll end up eating grass. So it's just interesting that in some ways the conversation has got worse and maybe get might get worse still before it gets better. But I believe it will get better. I think it has to in the end. Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.